Thanks for being with us. We talked a little bit last weekend about the efforts being made to try and save one of the southern resident killer whales known as J-50. And we were watching and waiting and getting updates on where the whales were, sightings of the whales. And there really has been an unprecedented rescue operation. And joining us now to talk a little bit more about that is Vancouver Aquarium veterinarian Martin Helena. He is on the line with us. Uh, Martin, thank you so so much for being with us this morning. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Uh, what has been done so far? I know you've been part of the team uh, trying to uh, to help and treat J50. What's uh, been done so far? Well, I've been one of the members of the core veterinary consulting group now for, for several weeks. And uh, what, uh, what the few of us have decided was to try and have one of us on the ground uh, at all times to be on call and, and ready to respond. Um, also, we've been, of course, on quite a few conference calls uh, with, with uh, groups of various size and having different uh, on them. So I was essentially on San Juan for, uh, last week. And as you know, you know our efforts are, 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 are also where the wells are and how accessible they are. And uh, the stars aligned on on Thursday for us to go out, uh, meet up with the with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans boat, who was monitoring J50 and her group at that time, just off of uh, Sook. It uh, found her and identified her, so we tagged up with them. Um, I was invited to be on the the NOAA boat, and uh, we we followed her along for about six hours. Got uh, several, actually, I think all of our goals done that day, including a very good. A health assessment, uh, a blow sample, and and we were able to deliver a, a dosage of antibiotic to her as well. And has that been done before? It's uh, it, it has been done in in some other whales uh, or other species and in, in other areas, but it has not, to my knowledge, been done on a killer whale, and and certainly not here in our backyard. Uh, when you talk about the, the blow sample, so the sample taken uh, from J50's blowhole, and how long will it take then, or what happens now as far as trying to figure out if it is an infection or what it is that perhaps has made her sick? Well, you, you, you've asked a big question. So, uh, you know, as far as the blow sample, that analysis will happen relatively quickly. Probably uh, we'll get results back in the next uh, days or, or up to a week. There are some sophisticated analyses that go into that. Um, but that, that is really, and all of this really are just tiny little pieces of a, of a big puzzle, as you can imagine, trying to uh, diagnose an animal um, that's a you know, large uh, marine mammal uh, that you can't actually get hands-on and can't get uh, equipment onto uh, can be quite challenging. So what, what we're faced with is, is trying to do a lot of observation, trying to use some fairly advanced te- uh, techniques as remotely as possible. And then also on the treatment side, treat the things that are treatable, um, not necessarily what we know to be 100% the diagnosis. And when we're talking about antibiotics, I think we tend to think as humans, so we always know when, when we're given them, you're supposed to use the whole bottle, and finish the dose. Is this something then with a the whale? Is it similar in that you'll have to keep finding her and giving her more doses of antibiotics? Well, there's two sides to this, of course. One, one is, um, you're absolutely right, that each antibiotic has its own 
um, method of being delivered and, and, and how long it lasts and, and dynamics within within a biologic system. The antibiotic we chose to go with was a convenient, which is a very broad spectrum, um, advanced generation of cephalosporin. Uh, so it can cover a lot of different bacteria. It also can last uh, anywhere from seven to, to 10 days uh, in, in animals. So it's a very unique kind of drug to, to use and, and a very good tool at our disposal. Is but, it? Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no please. <laughs> I, I was just wondering: is it different for you <laughs> because you you've spent so much time dealing with whales in in captivity at the aquarium, where I would imagine you you make a connection with, you have a relationship with? Is it different now when you see this whale in the wild and and treating an animal in such a different scenario? You know, I've been so lucky to do so many awesome things uh, in so many different scenarios with, with marine mammals. So, uh, as you know, we, we run a, a really big uh, marine mammal rescue program, and, and a lot of that work is done in the field with things like disentanglement of sea lions. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, of course, it's, it's an incredible experience to, to work with a killer whale and, and an endangered species and, and right in our own backyard. It's exactly, you know, the kind of thing I've always wanted to do, and, and all of us just want to help animals no matter where they are. Um, but it, but um, yeah, I've been I've been lucky. I've been in in all sorts of really uh, amazing situations with some really great people trying to do good things for good animals. How important is it? To, we've talked about the fact there are only seventy five whales in this pod left. How important is it that J fifty survive? Well, I, I think it's critical, right? Um, and and I use that word to describe her condition as well as the status of, of these animals in our waters. So 75 animals um, really is not a lot, obviously. And every animal is very, very important to that population, in particular a female animal. And, and then add on to that a female that has not had the opportunity to pass her genes on. Yes, she, she is a, a very, very important animal to this population. Uh, what are the next steps uh, for you and the team in this? So based on our observations on Thursday, and, and it was really an amazing uh, opportunity, we did follow her for quite a bit of time. Based on that, some of our, uh, you know, list of differentials, so these are, you know, a differential list is, is a, uh, a list of possibilities of what might be wrong with her. Those, those have been updated. What we really, really want is a really good evaluation on how her digestive system is working and how she's able to take in fish. So, is she taking in fish? Is she hunting on her own? Is she taking food from other animals? Is she able to swallow? Does she regurgitate? Does she vomit? And conversely, on, on the back end, you know, when she defecates, what is the character of those defecations? Can we get a sample of that? That would be very, very important. So that's where a lot of effort is going to go in, in the coming days. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are following along and hoping for the best in this scenario. Um, Martin, Helena, thank you so much for your time this morning. I know you've been very busy with this, but thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It's uh, it's really exciting to have so many people interested in this animal. It's a, it's a great feeling to be part of it. All right. I'm sure we will talk to you again. Thank you again so much. Well, my next guest was the chair of economics at McGill from 2005 to 2010, acting chair from 2016 to 2017. And he has written a piece in the National Post that takes a look at free markets or lack thereof in this country. And William Watson joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Well, it's great to be here, Jill. Uh, great to have you on the show. This is something that uh, has my uh, head scratcher going full blast to two at time to t- time to time. Uh, we're talking about uh, cannabis will be joining the long list of products that will be for sale in Canada come October 17th. But if we can learn anything from the selling of other uh, things, such as beer, wine, tobacco, and a whole list of other things you've talked about, uh, we're not so good at that. Well, I, we, we seem to be control freaks, or at least the people who govern us seem to be control freaks. And uh, uh, I, I was uh, ticked off uh, by a story about uh, what's going on in Saskatchewan with regards to uh, cannabis uh, liberalization, decriminalization. Uh, they've had their uh, Liquor and Gaming Commission look at it, and the Liquor and Gaming Commission, in its wisdom, has decided that there will be 51 cannabis outlets for the province. There will be seven in Saskatoon. There will be five in Regina. There will be one in most other uh, places. I just, I don't know where they get the the deep wisdom that tells them that uh, in Saskatoon you only need seven, or you do need seven. Uh, I'm an economist, and uh, I tend to think of these things as uh, voluntary transactions among people, uh, should there be regulations about the number of restaurants in Saskatoon? Uh, should there be the uh, regulations about the number of barbershops or hairstylists in Saskatoon? No, I don't think so. I, I think what happens is people who want to get into this business, and there are lots of them, uh, clearly there are lots of them if you read the business pages, uh, they get in, they set up shop. Uh, we probably want to subject them to some sort of regulation about the quality of the product that they're selling, the health and safety standards of the product that they're selling. But as long as they can demonstrate that they satisfy those uh, requirements, minimum requirements, then they get in, and if they make money, they stay in, and if they don't make money, they get out. And and in that way, we find out if Saskatoon needs seven outlets or two outlets or 25 outlets. Uh, we just let it happen. Uh, we legalize it, and we say... You know, from now on, we're not going to arrest people who buy and sell it. And uh, once that happens, then you'll get a regularization of uh, how this product is distributed. And it's not just cannabis, is it, though, when we look at other products? And I know you mentioned in the piece that you've written in the Post, uh, looking at the buck of beer and and some of the the comments on that, uh, that you'd think that in Ontario they were doing something extreme and really offensive, when really he's just saying, if you want to sell it for a buck of beer, you can. Well, that's right. I I think it's kind of strange for the premier of a province to have a position on the price of beer. There's all sorts (laughs) of other things. Uh, he should have a position on and, and do things about. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I sympathize with the idea that beer should be cheaper than it is. And, and if you opened up that market and deregulated it a lot, uh, in Ontario, of course, they got this crazy system of the beer store, which is run by the big uh, brewers and is, uh, with some ex- small exceptions, the only place you can buy beer. I, I'm talking to you from Quebec, where we've been used for many years to the idea of buying beer in the local grocery store. And, uh, uh, in fact, the carve-out in Quebec has been, it's only been small stores that could sell it. And uh, some years ago, we there had to be a liberalization that would allow bigger grocery stores to uh, sell beer. This was thought to be an unfair advantage over smaller stores. But, of course, as a consumer of beer, and I, I favor beer, I like beer, uh, I try not to drink it excessively, 
you know, I, I want convenience. I don't want to have to go to three places to do my shopping. I'd like to be able to do my shopping in, in one place. But it seems to me that, uh, you know, this was a, a bit of a rant that I put in the post, but it seems to me that uh, uh, too often when these decisions are made, the people who are actually consuming the stuff, uh, the end users of you know, that sounds like a, a sort of a criminal activity. I'm an end user, but it's also true for milk and cheese and now even maple syrup. Uh, governments are thinking of producers. They're thinking of keeping prices high, but they're not thinking of consumers and they're not thinking of uh, convenience. And uh, th- this is sort of across the board in terms of uh, political parties. If you consider supply management in dairy, which keeps our milk prices of all things uh, uh, much higher than they have to be. Uh, it's unanimous among federal parties that they don't want to touch supply management in the current uh, NAFTA negotiations or in any trade negotiations. And uh, so I guess I'd just like to see one or two voices in our political system for freeing up these markets and letting Canadians decide uh, how they want to purchase uh, these items and uh, how many outlets and at what price. Uh, and, and the market will do that. But, you know, the market has a bad reputation. It sounds like it's big corporations, but the market is basically just buyers. <laughs> it's the uh, the uh, end users, like you said. Why is it, right. do you think, that, that, we put a, that we're okay with that or we don't push back more in that if the government said all of a sudden decided to put a, a set price on how much somebody had to sell a tomato for, I would hope that we would be outraged by that, but we go along with it with all of these other products. I, I think we grumble. But, you know, we don't march on the legislature because that's very costly. And to any one of us, the damage done by, by these uh, um, rules and regulations is kind of minimal, right? It's real big for the people who are involved. If I'm a dairy farmer, I got lots of money in the game, and I'm very concerned about changes in the current system. Uh, but if I'm a milk consumer, well, it's costing me 20 or $30 a year, uh, am I going to organize? Am I going to go to Ottawa? Uh, am I going to write my member of parliament? Uh, probably not. So you've got these concentrated interests, uh, and you've got very diffuse consumer interests. You know, consumers are not very well organized, and there's lots and lots of us, and the cost to each of us is rather small. But I guess what really annoys me is that we know all this. This is pretty standard political science. You learn this in a first-year political science course, uh, this is not a good way to go about things. But, for instance, in Saskatchewan, they're creating seven or they're licensing seven producers to sell in Saskatoon. They're immediately creating a vested interest in the status quo. Uh, the head of the Liquor and Gaming Commission says, well, you know, if we need more outlets, we'll produce more. We'll, we'll produce more licenses. We'll allow more licenses. The seven people that currently have licenses are going to fight that like crazy. <laughs> and And so... You know, why are we producing, uh, generating new vested interests like the dairy cartel, like the cheese cartel, the chicken cartel, the maple syrup cartel in eastern Canada? Uh, it just it doesn't make sense. We, we have the knowledge that this is not a smart thing to do, and yet we're going ahead and doing it. So right. I find it confounding, befuddling, <laughs> annoying, aggravating. I got a long list of adjectives. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll have to get to those next time. We are out of time now, but William Watson, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Nice talking to you. You too.
Thanks for being with us this morning. Time to talk a little bit about Vancouver's housing market. And there is an article in BC Business that takes a look at three possible scenarios. Some seem far out there. Uh, One of them seems like maybe it might be what we're looking at down the road. But joining me on the line to uh, look at this is Tom Davidoff. He is a professor at the UBC Souter School of Business. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, The article in BC Business, it does look at at three possible scenarios, not to suggest there are only three scenarios looking ahead at Vancouver's housing market. Uh, The first one, though, uh, really is an extreme one, uh, talking about a giant crash. How likely do you think that is? Well, first of all, you know, if prices fall 20 percent, you know, relative to what usually happens in a market, that's a giant crash. Uh, and I think we've already seen drops of that magnitude probably at the highest end of the market, uh, which is facing so many uh, policy and uh, interest rate, rate headwinds. But uh, I think, you know, an 80 percent decline uh, market wide, that just that that's not in the cards. Uh, I, I know a short seller, Mark Cahodes, has put that number out, but I, I don't see that as possible. It does seem, I mean, 80% is such a huge number. It does seem like, and even he he referred to it as a 50 to 80% correction. That seems like much bigger than a correction. Yeah, it's a cataclysm. I mean, you do, I mean, one way you could look at it is you could go back in time when incomes were not that much lower than today, when interest rates were the same, uh, and prices have doubled since, I don't know, uh, the mid-2000s, roughly. So in that way, it's not totally crazy that you could live in a world similar to ours with prices half of what they are today. Uh, But we've had quite a bit of immigration since then, household formation by millennials. Uh, I don't see going back to uh, 50% lower prices market-wide. You mentioned as well there there have been drops in some areas in the housing market. What about the idea, though, that 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 scenario is kind of flattened out and now we're going to see a return to the prices just going up, up, up? Well, okay. so forecasting generally, I should add, is very hard. (laughs) And your best guess about where prices are going to be tomorrow in any asset market You want to start with, well, probably about where prices are today, uh, because if it was easy to know where the market was going, prices would already be there because everybody would know where they were heading. That said, uh, markets have certain features. Uh, They are mean reverting, which means if you have a long period of run up, you typically get a bit of a drop after that. Also, they have momentum in the short run. If you had a bad month last month, you tend to have a bad month again this month. And also, uh, volumes tend to lead prices. When you see a slowdown in sales, uh, typically you'll see sellers say, well, gosh, you know, if I want to sell this place, it looks like I'm going to have to lower the price. We all know somebody who's had a difficult time selling their property, and finally they listen to their realtor and cut the price. Uh, And so that mechanism suggests that because we're having sluggish sales, particularly in single family, but I think now bleeding down the quality spectrum, Uh, we're likely to see uh, continued price declines, not necessarily huge, uh, but, you know, expecting next month to be hot when you had a sluggish sales month this month, it could happen, uh, but a bit less likely.
Uh, because even looking just to anecdotally, uh, when, when you say that people, you know, uh, will have to lower the prices, uh, I always like to keep tabs uh, on what's happening uh, in my neighborhood. And there's a townhouse. Uh, it started at, I think, 850000 It's now down to seven forty nine or seven twenty nine. It's been on the market for months. So clearly, the, the sellers don't have to sell right away. But is that is that something that's indicative of what we're seeing in the market in, in that particular in the townhouse sector? Uh, I think, you know, typically townhomes have been somewhere between the not so well-performing single family and the very, very hot condo market. Uh, so they've been doing well. But again, I think every sector has slowed down uh, from where they were uh, some time ago. But you mentioned something important, which is sellers who do or don't have to sell. What you worry the most about is, and especially, you know, thinking about the U.S. experience uh, in the mid-2000s, which is what I'm naturally uh, thinking about when I think about a market downturn, is do sellers need to sell? And when you had these subprime borrowers who were heavily leveraged and really couldn't and possibly speculating who couldn't ride out uh, a long time to sell their home because they didn't have the wealth uh, and they needed the cash, that's when the price cuts really happen. The, the more expensive housing market saw lower declines, and that may have been a smaller number of uh, homeowners who actually needed to get out of their positions. Hmm. And what about the idea of of supply? I mean, not that it's just as simple as supply and demand, but we're told over and over again that there's going to be rezoning, there's going to be more product coming on the market, and that's going to make a difference. Well, there's a lot of condos coming up. And I think, you know, if you want to paint a nightmare scenario, uh, people who bought pre-sale units in the last year or so uh, probably bought them at a premium to what existing condos were going for. You know, the premium as big as 25 percent. That is a pre-sale unit might have been going for 25 percent or more uh, over what, uh, you know, a new condo nearby was selling for. Well, the buyer has to pay that price and then pay the sales tax when the building's complete. And if prices continue to fall, there'll be a bigger spread between what they paid and the market value of the condo. And some of them may walk away from their 20% deposit. Uh, Developers, in theory, can force them to close, but uh, I think that's probably hard in practice. So you could have people walking away from their condo assignments and a ton of new condos coming up for sale. I don't think that's the likely outcome. But if you want to paint a horror show picture for the condo segment, we do have uh, tens of thousands of condos that are going to be finished uh, in the next few years. And I suppose it depends, too, on who the buyers are in those scenarios. If they are people that are planning to live in them or they are people that, that, that were, weren't, didn't, uh, obviously weren't banking on them not being worth that much once they took over ownership. That's right. And, you know, there's two kinds that you worry about. There's people who uh, hadn't pre-qualified for a mortgage loan uh, and are now facing the stress test and lower comparable prices and may not be able to get the money from the bank. Uh, And obviously, anybody overseas uh, could probably ruthlessly walk away because I think a developer's capacity uh, to go after a buyer overseas is is quite limited. And what about interest rates? How do you see interest rates factoring in on this? Well, in the long run, of course, they're very important. You know, you think about rents discounted by some rate as the value of a property. So you divide uh, rents, net rents, for a year, 
uh, by something like an interest rate minus an expected growth value. And uh, if interest rates continue to go up, uh, values fall, uh, holding inflation constant. Real interest rates, though, are still very low. You know, uh, people, there's, a, there's actually a market for treasury bonds that compensate people for, treasure, uh, for inflation. And at least in the States, uh, you know, people think over 30 years, uh, people still only want 1% over inflation. So we've still got very low interest rates by historical standards. And uh, should they continue to rise, of course, that's a risk factor for the market. Uh, you mentioned rents. Uh, that was something else I found interesting uh, in this article was even if there is a, a correction or a, a more of a decline in prices, uh, that it likely uh, won't lead to uh, lower rents for people who are renting. Yeah, you know, rents and prices are a bit different. Prices include what's going on in how much you can borrow, at what interest rate you can borrow, where you think prices are going. Rents is, you know, how many people want a roof over their heads and how many roofs are there over their heads. So those can be a bit separate. You don't get a bubble in a rental market, really. Uh, And as long as there's more people uh, than units, Uh, rents are going to continue to escalate. The new condos coming online, I suspect a lot of them uh, will be investors looking to rent the place out. Uh, Empty homes tax has had some impact. If the speculation tax goes through at the provincial level, uh, that could lead people to rent out units that currently aren't rented. So we do have uh, some good news in terms of supply. Uh, Airbnb units, again, to the extent uh, short-term rental is facing regulatory pressure, you get more units online. But uh, if prices could absolutely correct without rents falling. And again, looking at the U.S. in the mid-2000s, uh, anecdotal, that, that's what people said. You know, People who got thrown out of their houses because they couldn't make their payments were forced into the rental market, which stayed quite strong. It is time to talk a little bit more about the Perseid meteor shower and NASA experts saying that it will be the most dazzling meteor shower of the year. So to tell us a bit more about this and where might be the best place to see the Perseid meteor shower is Dr. Krista van Lerhoven, postdoctoral fellow at UBC Physics and Astronomy. Professor, thank you so much, or fellow, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hello, very nice to be on. Uh, Where would be the best place? I'm looking outside, it's cloudy, it's obviously light out now, but are there still opportunities for people if they want to try and catch a glimpse of the Perseid meteor shower? Absolutely. The peak of the meteor shower continues through tonight. Uh, So if you can find a good dark site tonight, um, then you should be uh, in good stead. And what if it's still cloudy, though, that's uh, that's going to be a bit of a, a downer for people wanting to see this, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, as an astronomer, clouds are one of those things which, you know, the atmosphere is great for breathing, but terrible when you're trying to observe the sky. And sometimes you just get clouded out. And it's so unfortunate. But, you know, an atmosphere is a, overall a good thing to have. That is true. Now, if somebody does get to a dark spot and a clearing in the clouds, what exactly are we looking at? Uh, We're going to be seeing little bits of debris hit the atmosphere um, and light up. Um, So these little bits of debris are really small, something like grain of sand size to pea size. But when they hit the atmosphere, uh, the friction of them uh, hitting heats them up so much that they become really bright and they make a nice bright streak across the sky. Um, So we'll see something like 
uh, one a minute, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, if you've got a good dark sight and can see most of the sky. And is there, if it's, is it anywhere, if you can get out of the city, out of anywhere that has the lights to, to see this? Absolutely. Um, meteors are, are a very um, equal opportunity sort of thing. As long as you've got a good chunk of the sky to see, um, then, then you're doing quite well. The meteors, if you trace their path backwards, you'll end up in the constellation Perseus. So if you can see Perseus, you're doing even better, um, but they will appear all over the sky. And so you don't need to particularly worry about your view being blocked in one direction. All right. And what is it that, that causes them? And maybe that's an over, overly simple question, but when we talk about this being the annual meteor shower, what is it that causes them in, at this time of year? Oh, absolutely. So there was uh, this comet called Comet Swift-Tuttle, uh, and when it comes close to the sun, its surface heats up and all of the ices go, oh my God, it's the sun, we should warm up now. Uh, and this throws off a whole bunch of um, debris into its orbit. And the meteor shower happens every time Earth crosses through this comet's um, orbit where this ring of debris is. Uh, every time the comet comes past, it puts more debris in, in the orbit. So you get really good showers uh, when the comet has passed through close uh, in time before. Um, but the, this comet is so good at putting debris into its orbit that uh, this is a, a good, uh, reliable shower every year. And does it depend what phase the moon is in as far as light in the sky and viewing? Absolutely. The same reason why we keep asking people to go to a dark site. Um, the moon is, is an absolute influence on uh, what you can see. Like if you're, if you're trying to look for a firefly, it's really not helpful if your buddy's got a flashlight. Uh, this, in the same way, if you're looking for these meteors, which are a little dimmer, having the real bright moon in the sky is not particularly helpful. Uh, but this year is great. Um, we've got a, a new moon, so the moon's not up. Uh, in the sky, and thus not interfering uh, in our viewing. And, and how is the is this event an exciting event for for astronomers, or is it more uh, the, the lay people that we get excited about it? Uh, well, um, professional astronomers also get really excited by seeing pretty things in the sky. Uh, this is not exclusive to the lay people, um, but it is uh, not. Um, not as like scientifically exciting. We're not learning a whole bunch new from the Perseids every year. Um, we do definitely keep track of things like meteor showers because it helps us understand the debris environment around Earth. Um, so finding finding new meteor showers uh, and tracking um, overall how much debris there is in in the stream and how that changes from year to year. Uh, that can be quite interesting because it can tell us things about how the sun uh, radiation pressure changes the orbit of sand-sized particles, for example. Uh, so that can be pretty cool. Um, and that's not just for the Perseids, but an overall uh, research direction for meteor-related things in general. So I, I guess it would be more, it would be alarming then if we didn't see the Perseid meteor shower or if something had stopped it, we'd want to find out what it was that had thrown things off course. Absolutely. Uh, if, if it happened not as expected, we'd have to try to figure out what was going on. Uh, was, you know, the sun doing something interesting so that 
the solar radiation forces were different or, um, you know, what was different happening on the comet last time it passed through or something along those lines. So definitely there, there is science to be learned here, um, but it, it takes a couple, couple levels of, um, of investigation to get there. All right. My guess is maybe astronomers right now are a bit more excited about the idea that we're sending a probe into the sun. Oh, absolutely. This Parker Solar Probe is going to be so cool. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this, the sun's a very interesting thing. And uh, trying to figure out why, for example, the sun's far atmosphere, its corona, is really, really heated. Uh, it's probably something to do with interaction with the magnetic field, but exactly how that works is not well understood. Uh, so this, uh, this solar probe will uh, go a long way to helping us figure that out. Will you be following along then with the, the solar probe and what it finds out for us? Oh, absolutely. Um, the sun isn't exactly my field, um, but it's certainly interesting. And it, as the center of the solar system, carries a large influence. Uh, so figuring out what's going on with the sun is really helpful. And I mean, figuring out what's going on with the sun is also helpful when we're thinking about like planets around other stars, when we're thinking about what makes a planet habitable figuring out how its star behaves is a big part of that. If it, the star flares too much or too little, then maybe that, that planet's not a good candidate for life. So the more we can figure, about, figure out about the things in our own solar system, the better we are equipped to understand planets and stars outside of our solar system as well. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are hoping or will be be heading somewhere, hopefully without clouds and such tonight, to get a better look at uh, the Perseids in the sky. Uh, Dr. Van Lerhoven, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. It is uh, time to talk a little bit about dog language and communication with uh, the fur members of our family. And Dr. Stanley Corrin joins me on the line, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Psychology at the University of BC. Uh, Dr. Corrin, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, You've written a bit about this and the language that we share uh, sometimes with uh, our dogs, other people's dogs. How much do, first off, how much do dogs pick up on our body language and and the language, the words that we actually use? Well, um, the real trick to understanding dogs is that the average dog has a mind equivalent to about a two to two and a half year old kid. And the super dogs, that's the ones in the top uh, uh, 20% of uh, intelligence, uh, have a mind which is equivalent to about uh, a two-and-a-half to three-year-old. So that means to say that the average dog can pick up about 160 um, or so uh, words, uh, signs, signals, that sort of thing. And the super dogs can pick up about 250. So... Uh, you know, I have some linguistic friends, uh, some uh, friends in the Department of Linguistics at the university who say that if you have uh, 500 words and the present tense, you can fake a, a language. Uh, so uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> and do they pick up on words more or body language? Well, dogs are masters of body language. Um, uh, I mean, you could imagine if the if the wild ancestors of dogs, you know, are out hunting and the leader of the pack there so yells to the other ones, hey, guys, there's a deer over there. 
uh, well, they've just lost their lunch. So, um, uh, you know, they, they read body language very, very well. But they also read sounds. Um, and uh, they, as I said, uh, you know, they can pick up uh, um, uh, about uh, 200 or so words, uh, <coughs> pardon, uh, from us. And that also includes hand signals and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, people forget how much they use their hands uh, uh, as part of the their uh, regular communication. Doesn't help much on radio, but <laughs> not a whole lot. No. <laughs> uh, and and what about smell and and such? Do they the dogs obviously their their smell is very important to them. How does that help them as far as picking up on, on emotions and things? Oh well, that I mean. Uh, that's exquisite for dogs. And um, for them, I mean, it's the reason why they do some very impolite things like running over and sniffing at your crotch. Um, uh, for human beings, um, the uh, uh, areas which have uh, particularly uh, useful uh, sense for dogs are um, the um, so-called apocrine glands, uh, and uh, these are in the uh, armpits and in the groin area. Um, and uh, these carry all sorts of information uh, about um, uh, the individual's emotional state, uh, their sex, uh, uh, when they're dealing with other dogs, uh, whether or not uh, they're in heat. Um, and in fact, dogs are, are, are very, very sensitive to to uh, to sexual odors. Uh, there's a, a pilot project uh, going on uh, actually out in Abbotsford. Um, there's a uh, uh, if if you're going to breed cattle, you have only a very very small window, only a few days, in which the the, the cow is really fertile. And so if you want to catch that, uh, it's it's fairly difficult. But it turns out you can train dogs uh, to uh, walk down the uh, a line of uh, dairy cows and to mark each of the ones which is uh, in heat and ready to be bred. And uh, some people have said that, you know, well, you know, for, for people who don't practice, uh, you know, artificial uh, birth control um, for religious reasons or whatever else, you know, this this could be useful, uh, certainly much better than the rhythm method. And, of course, it would give a whole new meaning to somebody complaining that their sex life has gone to the dog. <laughs> that, that it would, for sure. <laughs> um, people, uh, some people are afraid of dogs, whether it's, it's meeting up with the dog or be, uh, seeing a dog on the street or what have you. It might be the size of the dog. How can we tell uh, from a dog? Is it the stance, how the ears are? How do we know if a dog is, is aggressive or, or is, is potentially going to bite us? Well, there there are a whole lot of signals. I mean, you know, you can read the dog's ears. Uh, a dog which is, uh, you know, feeling threatened by you, if he has prick ears, those ears are going to sort of uh, flatten out to, so they look like airplane uh, wings. Uh, for dogs who have lop ears, the floppy ears, uh, when, uh, when they're worried about you, uh, the ears uh, sort of... Uh, look like they're pasted to the side of the dog's head. Uh, an angry dog, the ears will come forward. Um, and uh, uh, the same thing goes uh, for the flop-eared dogs. Of course, uh, 
but in a slightly different way. Do you do you have an image in your head of what an angry elephant looks like? You know, with its ears sort of mm-hmm. out like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the the same muscles work on a floppier dog, only it sort of turns slightly, so that the ears are slightly forward. And then you could, of course, watch the mouth. I mean, if the if the dog is starting to show teeth uh, um, in a sustained way, uh, that's a obviously a sign. But you know, it, it, there are subtle differences. A, a dog who is who is dominant and aggressive opens his mouth in a in a sort of a C shaped, um, uh, and uh, you can see the teeth, but you can't see much of the gums. An animal which is which is fearful uh, and is, is getting ready to defend himself because he's fearful, uh, the mouth opens in a different way. You can just sort of imagine that the corners of the mouth uh, the, uh, are pulled back, uh, and you uh, see the teeth, but you also see a lot of the gums. And it's that fearful animal that you really have to worry about. I mean, a dominant dog is basically saying, back off and give me space. And if you back off and give them space, they say, fine, and they leave you alone. Uh, uh, but a fearful dog, I mean, you know, is is, is in fear of his life. And, uh, you know, if you back off, you might figure that this is my chance to bite you and and defend myself. So, uh, so you always worry more about the fearful dog than you do about the dominant dog. Mm, that's uh, good advice for sure. Are we learning more about how we communicate or better ways to communicate with canines? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we can teach the basics of bite prevention to school kids in, in an hour. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I have done that uh, over the years. Uh, we usually, uh, I usually pick uh, third grade uh, classes because... Uh, they're very verbal, ask the right questions, and can talk to their families. Um, and uh, a one-hour bite prevention um, uh, session uh, can uh, reduce uh, the uh, rate of bites uh, in kids uh, by 80%, and and their family members, their, their siblings, by 60%. And there's some wonderful materials which you can get. Uh, there's a a website called Doggone Safe, and they provide these for teachers. And you know, they're they're just just uh, uh, big pictures of of, of dogs, so that uh, the kids know which ones to approach and which ones not to approach. And uh, you know, you you can get the the sexy printed ones, but they you can also download them from them uh, free. So um, uh, you know. And and uh, the trick which we uh, use is we uh, teach the kids a technique which is called be a tree. Uh, you have to understand that everything about a kid uh, um, seems attackable to a dog. I mean, you know, they move in an awkward way so that they look like a, a wounded animal and they make those high squeaking sounds, which, you know, and that sort of thing. And the be a tree technique is really incredibly simple. You know, we teach the kids... Uh, to stand still uh, like a tree um, and to fold their branches so they fold their arms so they're not reaching for the dog and making threatening uh, movements and then to stare at their roots because a direct stare into a dog's eye is a challenge. Uh, And and it's amazing that 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 simple thing will break off uh, any uh, thoughts of attack uh, of, of a dog who's spooked. 
Well, if you have walked around any uh, commercial areas of Vancouver where there used to be store after store after store, you might have seen a lot of for lease signs, uh, signs that perhaps say retail opportunities. Uh, but when you look a bit further, you see the store itself is empty. So has there been an exodus from Vancouver, particularly the downtown area of Vancouver? My next guest is here to talk about that. And joining me on the line is Craig Patterson, the editor of Retail In. Insider, and he's also been consulting with the city of Vancouver on this issue. Craig, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, is it safe to say, or is it fair to say, there's been an exodus of retail from downtown Vancouver? Well, I'm not sure if it's so much an exodus from downtown Vancouver. As I think that retail in general is changing, and we've seen some stores closing, and we have seen some moving. Um, that might not even be from downtown. That might be more along lines of, say, Punjabi Market. Some of those businesses have moved up to Surrey. And is it purely a cost thing, or why would someone choose then to move from that area of Vancouver to Surrey? Well, in that case, it's interesting because uh, a lot of uh, the Indo-Canadian population kind of moved out that way. And then what some business owners found is that they were able to get you know, cheaper leases, more space in newer buildings uh, you know, for less. So I would say overall, yes, I think economics would uh, be the case, or at least that's part of the explanation. And is it property taxes? Because we've talked about this on the show before as well, in that in Vancouver, especially where the price of things is so expensive and the value of land and such is so expensive, but your property taxes actually are linked to the best use of the building and the potential of the building, which means for a lot of businesses, they can be a lot higher. That's right, and that is an issue in Vancouver right now. Is uh, you know land prices are very high, and if those uh, rent, you know increases are passed on to retailers, you know how can retailers survive? Uh, retailers don't generally. When we use a real rough rule of thumb, that not more than ten percent of revenue should pay for rent. So if you have a ten dollar uh, you know, per year increase in your lease, then you make a hundred dollars more to to justify that, and that's not something that we're seeing. And in some cases, we're seeing traffic decreasing in uh, Vancouver foot traffic, I should say, anyways, on certain streets, and that's an issue there as well. And what about the idea of online and people that might be looking in stores but are actually doing their purchasing online? Uh, that's a bit of a factor. I mean, still less than ten percent of all retail sales are done online, so physical retail is still. Uh, you know, the way that most people are consuming things, but people are also buying differently and they are buying online. That's more in the area of electronics and a few other categories. So, you know, I think that has hit certain uh, categories of retailers, uh, you know, but I think, you know, in some cases, Vancouver is still thriving, especially with luxury retail right now. And by luxury retail, talking about the high-end stores and the, the, the very uh, high-end brand stores? That's right. Uh, Alberni Street, uh, Burrard in that area has certainly... Uh, Flourish. It's now got the highest rents in the city for uh, retail space. That was what Robson had been. Uh, Robson Street had the highest retail rates for well decades actually. So it's really interesting how you know this, this luxury street has come in in the last five years and really sort of taken over and has become you know, the destination that a lot of brands want to be in. And there's a couple of other uh, big ones coming in this fall. All over People's, uh, which is an optical retailer, and Richemont Group has signed several more leases uh, for boutiques like Cartier. It's quite interesting. Do you run the risk? though of a city in the downtown core and and it makes sense it's it's the most expensive real estate it's the most expensive place to have a shop so you're going to have the high-end retailers but do you run the risk then of becoming a downtown core that only has shops that cater to the rich and and doesn't have shops that are where the residents and where uh, the working people are shopping it's possible i mean i think that as long as the demand is there for certain businesses that are local 
uh, those businesses would survive on, say, you know, a street like Denman Street or Davie Street, uh, you know, your dry cleaners, whatever, you know, markets that people might shop at. But uh, I do think that Vancouver uh, is at risk of losing, I guess you'd say, its character of independent retailers generally as, uh, you know, only the big brands can afford to pay the rent. And, uh, you know, as the population in downtown Vancouver uh, and other parts of Vancouver shifts towards a, a primarily affluent uh, market. If you look at the new condominium proposals uh, in the city, in the downtown core of Vancouver, I don't think any of them are really uh, not for those who are, are tremendous financial means, and I think that retail is going to reflect that. And so, and so, where do the other stores go? Because presumably, people still need the the corner grocery store to run to. They still need to buy clothes. They still need to purchase things. And we're talking about people who are making modest salaries. So, so do they just keep getting pushed out further and further? Well, there is certainly a move towards the suburbs. I mean, uh, there's always going to be, I think, people living throughout the city. Uh, you know, the city does have programs to put modest or you know moderately priced housing in different areas. So it's not like you know it's becoming Monaco or something like that. Uh, you know, but but Vancouver's getting there. So, but you know, certainly there are plenty of affordable uh, retailers and suburban shopping centers, as well as on some of the smaller you know commercial streets in the city as well. And I don't think that we'll see, uh, you know, a complete decrease. Like, I think that Nordstrom Rack will announce their Vancouver store soon. You know, their Saks off at the Winners has lots of stores. Winners does very well. So uh, I think there's always going to be affordable shopping, but perhaps just more at the lower end, and the higher end and the middle would be uh, less so, I would say, as, as, you know, the middle class also is decreasing in population. Is there any appetite for cities, a city like Vancouver, to offer incentives or to help out the smaller businesses to keep that to kind of to keep the the mixture to make sure it doesn't all go super high end? I think that would be possible. I mean, I don't know if it's in a city's interest politically or otherwise to to try to do that. But I I do think that, uh, you know, in some projects that I've seen and even worked with, uh, there is, uh, you know, the city is examining whether or not they can create some sort of a diversity in retail, you know, uh, pop-up locations, uh, you know, retail that would, uh, you know, retail areas that would support smaller businesses, looking at different areas to mix it up. Uh, you know, I don't know if they can really dictate anything on commercial streets that are existing, but for any new projects that may be coming down the pipeline, there is an opportunity to try to create, I guess, a diversity in retail, and that could be man-made. And are there other cities do you look at or are there places that have been fails when it comes to this that we can learn from or we know not to go down that road? Well, sort of. I mean, I mentioned Monaco. I mean, that's probably a terrible example because it's, uh, you know, very much a resort for the super wealthy and and comparing Vancouver to Monaco may not be flattering. Uh, I know that, you know, especially politically. Um, you know, Macau might be another example in China where, you know, it's, it's almost a gambling city, which I guess would be, you know, Las Vegas. Uh, I, I guess, you know, San Francisco might be an example. I mean, there are affordable stores there, but we've certainly got, uh, uh, you know, a real transition there. I mean, one of the bigger things we're seeing right now in Vancouver's in the forefront is we're seeing vacancies. We're seeing, uh, you know, businesses moving. And, you know, New York City, for example, has a considerable amount of vacancies on some of its major streets because landlords are not giving, you know, they're not willing to give breaks on rent. And I think, again, that's another uh, issue altogether. Uh, But, uh, you know, San Francisco and New York, I think, are interesting examples right now of, of commercial vacancies. And whether, you know, looking more towards the future of just having a luxury retail area, I mean, Beverly Hills, but I, I don't think Vancouver's going to get that far.
And when you talk about landlords, then is it more attractive then for a landlord to have the say if it's a landlord that has commercial in the first floor of a building? Is it better then to have it vacant than to give a break on the rent? It depends. Uh, if you think about it, uh, the value of a commercial space is sometimes determined based on what kind of rents you can get. So. If you can get $100 per square foot rent for a commercial space, it's going to have a certain value. And if you can only get $50 per square foot for a space, then it's going to have half that value. So, you know, some landlords are going to look at that and say, well, you know, goodness, uh, it's not going to be you know, in our best interest to give this break on rent. We'll let this commercial property sit vacant. Uh, you know, so that is uh, one possibility. But, uh, no, it's in some cases, though, you know, um, assessments have gone up uh, significantly. You know, the city said, what's the highest and best use on a piece of land? And, and from there, we're seeing taxes going up. And I, I think that's quite a concern because residential property taxes in Vancouver comparatively are very low compared to commercial taxes. Uh, you know, and businesses are really supporting this when I think the residents should uh, more so. That's probably not a popular opinion, though, certainly amongst homeowners uh, who pay taxes. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, <laughs> what about the, the, the makeup of the city, though? And I'm, I'm, I know that, that Chapters Indigo, they've been looking for another site. When they closed down the big store on um, Robson and uh, Howe, it became a sports store, which I, I remember at the time, people there were a lot of people that thought, oh, it's too bad because there's something about having a bookstore in the downtown that that is a nice thing. It's not a library, but it is it is a nice thing to have. I know they are looking for another location, but is that something where, where we tend to lose a bit of the fabric or we lose a bit of the, the, the it's not just a big box store, it's got a bit of character to it? I think so. Uh, and I don't even know if it's just downtown. Uh, I, again, you know, you look at Punjabi Market and you look at a few other areas. And I think that having a compelling retail mix that's going to attract people is kind of like putting ingredients into a bowl and making, you know, a cake. Uh, you've got to have a certain uh, mixture of things that are going to draw people, you know, be it uh, shoes, jewelry, fashion, food. Uh, food is actually more important than people think because, you know, food can really bring people in. So, you know, we're starting to see food halls uh, being built into centres and we're seeing a couple of those going in Vancouver, including Oak Ridge Centre. But, um, you know, having that mix is a challenge. I don't think Denman Street has it. It did at one time. And, uh, you know, as a result, that street, I think, is stagnating. And uh, there are, I think, a few examples in Vancouver right now where, you know, higher rents have pushed out smaller businesses, which may actually be an attraction and, you know, draw people in. And people are going to, you know, look at certain streets and say, well, why should I go there? You know, unless you live in the immediate area, it's not a draw. And I think that is an issue in certain parts of Vancouver. Now, whereas certain streets were a draw in the past, and I think commercial drive is at risk as well. Hmm. Well, it is an interesting one, uh, certainly. Uh, Craig, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, and talking about this this morning. Thank you for having me.